Hey, it's Sarah reminding you to get your day started with Keyshawn, J. Will, and Zubin every morning at 6 a.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio. From Jay Williams' expertise on the NBA playoffs to Keyshawn Johnson's insights into the latest in the NFL moves, don't miss a morning with Keyshawn, J. Will, and Zubin, or listen to the podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for world-class soccer, ESPN Plus is where to find it. The best teams, the biggest stars, and over 20 international leagues and tournaments. La Liga, Bundesliga, MLS, FA Cup, Copa del Rey, and more. Sign up now at ESPNPlus.com. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. I'm Parker Malloy, and my dilemma is that I don't know how to organize my time now that I'm self-employed. Well, you're certainly not alone. I think anybody who has been self-employed or had to self-motivate knows where you're coming from. I had a few months stretch, uh, a year or so after I moved back to Chicago, uh, a decade plus ago, in between working for a startup website that I'd moved back to Chicago for and before joining ESPN 1000 Radio. And I was blogging for a Chicago Tribune-owned sort of blog conglomerate. It was a paid-by-the-clicks kind of thing. No required number of posts, no real editor or leadership uh, in in an everyday sort of way. And it really took diligence and discipline to sit down every day and write about the sports news of the day, come up with creative and new takes on things uh, without an editor or a deadline or even remotely rewarding pay. Not at all. Uh, But what I did learn was how important a schedule is. So set an alarm, block off your day in chunks, whether that's for research or writing or interviews or whatever. Find a coffee shop or a library or a place to work that isn't your home because you're going to get distracted by pets or chores or, or TV or whatever. And there's also this amazing coffeeativity app that replicates the sound of a bustling coffee shop. So you've got that good white noise to work to. I can't work with music because I sing along. And if I don't have something in my ears, I, I listen to the buzz of the room. So uh, coffeeativity, if you Google that, it's awesome. And, you know, if something fun comes up, you can always adjust and take advantage and, and take that day off. That's sort of the point of being self-employed. But if you do that too often, uh, you will be forced back into the grind of working for the man. So uh, set that schedule. That's what she said. This week's guest is Parker Malloy, an American writer and blogger who's written for Rolling Stone, The Huffington Post, Salon, The Advocate, and until quite recently was writing about the intersection of culture, technology, media, and politics as an editor-at-large at MediaMatters.com. She often writes about transgender issues. She just started a newsletter, Present Age Press, about communication in a hyper-connected world. Parker was included in the second annual Trans 100 list, recognizing the work of 100 transgender advocates in the United States, which was announced at their launch event back in 2014. I followed her for a while on social media, and I just wanted to pick her brain about the work she does, especially how to digest and manage the news of the day, um, particularly laws and policies that challenge her own rights as a trans woman. Um, Relatedly, what it's like to be part of a growing group of female journalists who have stepped away from editing and writing gigs at big companies uh, because of burnout. I'll warn you, the first half of the interview, we had a little bit of technical difficulty. So every once in a while, you might hear a little blurp or a boop or a pause uh, where we're kind of feeling out whether someone has stopped talking or if they've been eaten by the internet monster. Uh, Hopefully not too distracting. Just worth a mention, though. Hope you enjoy the conversation. That's what she said. I always love getting the chance to talk to someone 
in-person-ish. It's a Zoom type deal, but it's still talking um, that I've only interacted with online. And so I get to talk to them in real life. And that is the case with today's guest, uh, Parker Malloy, who I've been following for a long time now and interacting with on social media, but finally getting the chance to, to get to know her a little better and talk about her work, especially as she's making the big pivot to a newsletter. Um, but let's start way back when Parker, Manhattan, Illinois is not a place that I have heard of, uh, but it doesn't seem like it's even that far from me in Chicago. So tell me all about Manhattan, Illinois. Sure, sure. So uh, so Manhattan, Illinois is in the southwest suburbs of Chicago, kind of out by Joliet and New Lenox, that sort of area. There were uh, a lot of gravel roads, which is kind of jarring. Even, uh, even the surrounding areas had paved roads, so it was always... Uh, definitely a a high point to be able to not have to be in Manhattan at any point. Um, but yeah, no, it's a s- small town. There were when I when I was living there when I was growing up there, there were the like thirty five hundred people. So uh, yeah, I, I I can't tell you what's happening yeah. with it right now though. So I don't know. Maybe it burned down. Who knows? <laughs> Been a while. Um, so what kind of kid were you? Oh, I was, what kind of kid was I? I was uh, a very introverted. I was the, the, the type of person who would uh, spend like in, like in high school, I would, I would uh, spend my free periods by just hanging out on the like auditorium stage and practicing guitar or reading, just boring, <laughs> boring stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, when growing up, I, I played soccer and baseball and basketball and I loved sports and it was a good time but then it turns out that I just wasn't very good at any of the sports so I stopped playing them (laughs) (laughs) got it what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up oh I for a while I wanted to be a radio DJ (laughs) okay and uh like like B96 something in the days of uh, yeah yeah back back in the day it was uh you know you wake up and there's uh what was the the show Eddie and Jobo that was the the B96 show back in the day yeah so so uh that was that was kind of like my my dream job and then I was like maybe I should maybe I should uh do something that I'm good at. I don't know. So I'm better. I'm better at writing than talking. So that's okay. kind of how I shifted into writing. So is that what brought you to to Millican University? Uh, no, it was that. Those were my uh, my my guitar skills. Uh, okay. Which yeah, <laughs> um, I I went there to. Uh, I originally majored in uh, music performance, where I um, played classical and jazz guitar. Went down to Millican in uh, Decatur, which is in central Illinois. Um, and it was an experience. I spent three semesters there before I dropped out and moved back in with my parents for about a year before moving up to Chicago and going to Columbia College, where I majored in uh, arts, entertainment, and media management. Why do you think the experience at Milliken was one that you didn't want to stick with? Well, uh, for one, I kind of figured that the the major that I was in, uh, music performance, was kind of a uh, not not a good one because there there's no real work to come out of it. Like if you're playing an orchestral instrument, like a trumpet or a trombone or something like that, or a violin, violin yeah. I don't know why I went with trumpet, but um, <laughs> so like if you're playing one of those, it's like, yeah, there are orchestras all over the place <laughs> and stuff. But when it's like guitar, what are you even going to do with that degree? And it 
it's kind of kind of funny that you know a little little sad that I didn't really think about that until I was like 19. I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. I should probably find a way to make some money <laughs> and actually like survive. So you end up at Columbia College and with this renewed, uh, you know, new degree and, and renewed interest in in the pursuit of something else. Did you have a different and better experience? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was it was it was kind of nice to uh, spend some time in the city for the first time because I, I hadn't um, I hadn't ever really lived in Chicago up until I uh, or I hadn't spent much time in Chicago until I moved here for um, for college. So that was, that was kind of nice. That was really the best part of that experience. As far as my, my degree goes, uh, I, I tried to focus on, on music business. That was kind of what I wanted to get into at that point. And so after college, I went and spent some time, um, working for a, someone who manages bands and they manage, um, Andrew Bird, who's like a violinist, multi-instrumentalist oh, cool. dude yeah and it was fun it was good it was a good time and uh it, it it didn't pay particularly well uh and i had student loans to pay off so i went and kind of started moving around and trying different things and and so i i eventually kind of ended up just uh writing writing blogs on the internet and getting paid for it well before that so you so you worked uh you were an internet pitchfork while in school yeah. then you worked for um the the band management and Andrew Bird I have a friend who's like a huge Andrew Bird fan so um he's like I don't even know how to describe him he's like experimentalist rock kind of like he's very quirky hybrid of like that violin playing but also like indie kind of vibes Yeah yeah exactly he he um he he does a lot lot with like loops, live loop pedal type yeah. stuff, which is really neat yeah, yeah. and really different. He's he's a super talented dude. And then you worked at an ad agency. Tell me about the decision to start writing, and and was that something that in your work, um, while pursuing other things, you had always been drawn to, or did you happen upon it later and and have something to say? Sure. Um. Well, I mean, really, one thing one thing that it was kind of a kind kind of getting into writing was. It was mostly that when I was growing up, I, I used to spend a lot of time kind of just journaling for myself. Like that was, I had a, uh, like a Zanga in a, in a, you know, right. uh, those, those, whatever those other ones were, I had all of those. Uh, uh, and um, it, it was cathartic. It was nice. It was, it was good to kind of express myself in, in that sort of way just for me. And so I, I kind of started doing that. So when I was in my 20s, I came out as transgender. And one thing I noticed was that a lot of the coverage of trans issues in media was just really remarkably, unbelievably bad. So I decided to um, start pitching stories to different outlets to be like, hey, I see that you covered this one story, but I don't think that you really told the whole thing. I could write about this. And, you know, I didn't know how anything works. So I would just like send like, I would cold email editors. And the first place to ever pay me to write something was uh, salon.com. They were just like, yeah, sure. And we'll give you like $150. And, and to me at the time, I was like, oh my God, they're going to actually give me money. And uh, it was, it was pretty neat. I wrote about like some, some bill in California at the time that was going around where, it was kind of a conservatives wanted to repeal this law in California that allowed trans kids to play on like their school sports teams and stuff. And so I wrote about the effort to repeal it and uh, it, it was fine. 
you know, I didn't quit my day job <laughs> right there. So, you know, I kept doing that for a few years. And then finally, it got to the point where, you know, I was able to, I was able to get like actual consistent jobs that lasted a little while, like um, working at, I worked at upworthy.com for a little bit, which was, you know, way back in the day, there were those, uh, you'll never believe what happens next kind of clickbaity kind of titles. I, I, I was there after that after yeah, that era yeah. but Dad, i wonder if you're with... responsible for the photo of me from spring training that uh <laughs> there's a picture of me from spring training years ago and it started floating around from upworthy the fans couldn't believe what they saw or she didn't know what the fans could see and i was like god darn it <laughs> and now it's been out in the in the internet world for for years floating yeah. around and returning to me every couple of years yeah that <laughs> that that wasn't me i'm i'm happy to say Let's go back quickly to you talking about um, starting to, to write because parkthatcar.net was a yes. blog that you started to sort of chronicle your mm -hmm. your transition and mm -hmm. coming out to your coworkers and friends and family. I, I want to know, were there friends and family that, that knew before um, and were you having these conversations about this big decision well before you publicly talked about it or was there this moment where it was just like everything opened up and, and you told everyone it was sure. it. Um, so, so basically what happened was um, I started kind of just, just writing about it before I told anyone. And, and it was just a totally private blog um, for, wow. for, my, for myself. And um, oh, so anonymous or was yeah, it? Well, no, no, oh, okay. it, it wasn't even anonymous. I just, I just kept it like, I didn't tell anyone about it and I wasn't like using like full, full names, but it was still like, Hey, here's me, you know, kind of, kind of stuff. But I just kind of assumed that no one would actually care or read it. And um, coming out is kind of this interesting thing where it's really on a need to know basis. Uh, not everyone knows at once. I didn't just uh, burst into work one day like, guess what, guys? FYI, I'm trans. It was, uh, it was, it was something where <laughs> uh, I, I, I told the the person that I was dating at the time. And really trying trying to work work through that work through kind of just um, dealing with that sort of stuff on a personal level personal like relationships with my uh, the person I was dating the uh, my close friends uh, my family members who I thought would accept me which were like my parents and my siblings uh, kind of left my my extended family in the dark for a little bit <laughs> while while I kind of figured out what was next. But um, yeah, it was something like eight or nine months after I first told anyone about it that I was like that I that I allowed everyone in my life to to know more about that. So it was uh, it was a process, and it's it's something that I'm kind of glad that is just sort of in the past for me. Like I don't I don't really have to you know, out myself as trans to anyone unless I, I want to, you know, it's like, I'm not right. You know, I've, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, if it's not someone you're dating, and it's not a doctor, they don't really have a, there's no reason someone needs to know that you're trans, you know, so like, that's, that's kind of, uh, kind of, totally. kind of been my, my approach with it. But for the most part, if anyone Googles my name, they can they can find, you know, things that I've written that where I talk about being trans, which for a while I did a lot of that and before moving on to kind of other stuff, other writing. 
it's interesting to look at your work because it's clear that you now are talking about so many things outside of, of transgender issues, even though that's something that is clearly still very important to you to make sure it's covered well and thoughtfully. Um, but it feels like a lot of your writing work stemmed from not only wanting to correct the work of others, but also to document um, what was what was going on for you. You wrote a book, an ebook, My yeah. Transgender Coming Out Story, um, kind of documenting alongside um you know, your, your coming out story and, and people's reactions to it. And if you're okay with revisiting, I'm curious how, you know, friends and family reacted. Um, this was what, 2013. So yeah, it was, you know, yeah. um, not quite a decade ago, but certainly a lot has changed in terms of, of, of trans rights and trans understanding. Sure. Yeah. 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 A, a lot has really has changed. I mean, back, back then it was, kind of this thing where you say you, you tell people like oh I'm transgender and they're, they're like I don't know what that is and it's different to today now if someone says uh you know oh so-and-so is transgender they'll they'll have a very strong opinion about this issue <laughs> uh which is not necessarily a great right. not necessarily a great thing um because it's just it's getting covered more and more on um you know just in media generally um and the the same issues are still out there the same misinformation and you know cherry picked uh, examples of people in in different situations where you sort of have the fact that people are still talking about trans people competing in sports as some giant scandal when I, you know, for the most part, trans people are just trying to exist, <laughs> just trying to exist and would, would really prefer if the world didn't like, you know, discriminate against us, uh, or, or anything like that. So that would, that would be ideal. But, um, yeah, so a lot, a lot's changed in, the, in, the, in that span of time, which has been both good and bad. Um, there have been positive steps along the way. There yeah. have been, um, you know, in Illinois, there have been a number of, like, Illinois made it easier to update birth certificates and update your name and, you know, stuff stuff like that, which is um, can be kind of complicated. But other states have, have taken it the other direction, which is unfortunate. Not, not too much has happened on a federal level, which is why it's, it's still an issue that as much as it's not the focus of my work and it's not the focus of my day-to-day -day life, it is still something that will always kind of sit in the back of my mind because there are people out there who really would rather that trans people just not exist <laughs> or, or would rather that we, we sort of exist without um, having any legal protections, you know, or uh, people who think that, oh, I should be able to, you know, insult this person to their face every day at work and not have it count as a hostile work environment. That's that's sort of situation. So as, as long as th there are still like those open questions, it's always going to be something that I kind of think about from time to time. And, and so one thing I, one thing I wanted to do with, you know, thinking about, about trans issues generally and about media generally, because I, I do think, I think media is very important. You know, the way that, the way that people talk about different issues really shapes their understanding and when it comes to trans issues, there were two places that people were getting their, their information from. They were getting it from the news and they were getting it from Hollywood. And for a long time, neither was doing a very good job. You know, you had movies like Ace Ventura or the, the crying game or, you know, dress to kill, you know, all of these movies were basically 
there was a trans person and the trans person was the villain. You had, you know, silence of the lambs, <laughs> you know, these, these sorts of things where that was the sort of representation that existed for a long time. And then when you would hear, you know, a story involving a trans person on the news, it would be presented in this sort of way that is just very either clinical or it just would would call people the wrong name or misgender them or it just wasn't very positive and wasn't very um, accurate. So you had those were the places that everyone was getting their information from. So I kind of set out to, you know, try to correct that record a little bit to shine a light on some of the mistakes that were happening. Yeah. You know, we'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Suspenseful. Ah, what an interesting favorite word. Okay, uh, suspenseful from 1400, meaning abeyance, temporary cessation, state of not being carried out, referring to legal matters from the old French and Latin suspensus, to hang up or interrupt. Uh, and then it came to mean a state of mental uncertainty with more or less anxiety in the mid-15th century. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is clue. Yep, very simple, C-L-U-E. But the history of the word is fascinating. So it originated in the 1590s to mean anything that guides or directs in an intricate case. It's a revised spelling of a previous word, clue, C-L-E-W, a ball of thread or yarn. So this was originally a reference to the clue of thread given by Ariadne to Theseus as a guide out of the labyrinth in Greek mythology. So Theseus ties one end of the thread to the door of the labyrinth, manages to go in and find and kill the minotaur deep within, and then follows the thread back out. So it was clue, C-L-E-W, yarn or thread, and in the 1620s became clue, C-L-U-E, that which points the way even without regard to labyrinths. Um, and then a clue, as in something which a bewildered person does not have, didn't arrive until 1948. I just, I just love that idea of the very specific and literal clue of yarn coming to mean this larger thing of a, of a hint or uh, a way out of an intricate, mysterious situation. So, in a sentence, I haven't a clue why some of you haven't seen the classic movie Clue. And the fact that you haven't makes me both disappointed and mad. So mad, in fact, that flames, flames from the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving. And if you don't get that reference, it's because you haven't seen the movie Clue. Do that immediately when this podcast is over. Now let's get back to the interview. Well, one of the things that you wrote about that um, you just mentioned in terms of like Hollywood's... Um, discussions or representations of trans people um, got you a lot of criticism. It was, it was the article you wrote um, for the advocate about um, RuPaul's drag race and yeah. the word tranny being used in the show. Um, there was also a segment called she male and there were plenty of people that supported your take and agreed that it needed to be addressed and that it wasn't um, the language was not operating in a way that was supportive of the trans community. But there were also some pretty big transgender activists who um, and and drag artists who criticized oh, yeah. you. Um, what was that like for you? Because I know, unfortunately, the back and forth between you and some of the people that didn't like your criticism lasted a, a long time and maybe even was became the subject of, of 
fodder for the for the fans of that show in ways that lost the purpose. But what did you come out thinking about that engagement with RuPaul and that show and and the back and forth with the people who disagreed with you? So the funny thing is, in hindsight, looking, you know, and and it not 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 in immediate hindsight, but in this sort of, you know, now that we're a few years removed from all of this, you know, I, I think that my take wasn't anywhere near nuanced enough. I think honestly, you know, it's it's one of those things where language is complicated and language is nuanced and I probably should have you know, I think we've all had pieces that we start to write where a good editor would be like maybe let's not write run that. And I think that that's one of those pieces uh that Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's 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 something that in in the larger scheme of things, I I you know, I I I feel frustrated that there were times where I would just kind of fall on my face mostly, you know, where I would just say something loud and it wouldn't necessarily be wrong. It would just be loud and it would be my opinion. But one of the issues with there not being much trans representation in in media is that when people hear an opinion and you are the one that they're hearing from, it, it tends to be presented as this is the view of the trans community when it's, I mean, there, there is no view of the trans community. You know, you can't really lump, you know, all of us in together because some, you know, sometimes the only things we have in common are the fact that we're trans, (laughs) you know, it's like, and then, and that's fine. That's, that's fine. So it's, it's, it's hard to do that that sort of thing where you, where you try to make these large like pronouncements like this is wrong. This is bad. You should do better. Right. You know? And that's why in the years since that I've tried to, I've tried to kind of zoom out a little bit and, and take like a, try to take a more nuanced view and try to try to not get involved in so many dumb fights with people on, on the yeah. internet, which, you know, <laughs> I mean, hard. It's hard to do. Yeah, they suck you in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, this person made me mad. And of course, in in my mind, I'll sit there and, you know, I'll I'll be sitting there and I'll my mind will read it in the worst possible way. You know, oh, here they are. T- you know, telling me to have a good day. How dare they? You know that that sort of <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, there's no tone. Yeah. there's no. And then like I talk about this a lot. There's the psychosomatic reactions, the natural reactions we have to engaging with other people are basically gone. And so we don't try to connect the way humans normally would in a discussion. Even when you're disagreeing with someone in person, you're reading their facial reactions and it's telling you to adjust your approach or to be more firm or to be less aggressive, whatever that is. We don't have any of that. And, you know, it actually brings me to the next thing I want to ask you about, which is you do mention in all the spaces that you're on, that you're on Twitter too much, right? But that acknowledgement is almost like a, I'm I know I have a problem. I'm admitting to the problem, but I'm not necessarily fixing it. Um, And I wonder, because I have the same issue. I have these moments where I think, what am I doing? And then after a while, I get sucked back in. Then I have another wake up call of like, just step away. Mm -hmm. It's not useful. Um, And I think that that can combine too with the incredible emotion of feeling like you're representing something bigger. Like you said, that you're being treated as a monolith and and you speak for all trans people. And that's a ton of pressure. And it also manifests in ways where, like you said, you're disagreeing with people online and then it, it, it becomes depressing or, or you're, you become incredibly angry. And I know you've had some issues with that too, where you've fought with people online and, and stepped over lines that you 
that you never could have imagined that you would, and you were rightfully criticized for that. But that's because we get into these spaces and we kind of lose the rules of engagement with other human beings. And so I wonder if you if you take all of that into account, does it ever actually make you want to step away from that? Or is it too hard because that's kind of the currency of your work? Yeah, that's um, it's it's tricky because, uh, yeah, as, as you were saying, I, I, I think that it's really easy to take something too personally and to respond in a really harsh way. And that's, that's something that I've, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people have done, but I've, I've definitely done that. And I've definitely tried to reexamine kind of where I am, you know, how I'm spending my time online. And I think that, you know, in the past, in the past couple, like couple years of uh, it's, it's been a lot better, but at the same time, truly unplugging has been something I hadn't been able to do because of my job, because, you know, I was, I was spending all this time monitoring, you know, what was happening in right-wing media. That was kind of a big, um, you know, a, a, a big thing. Now that I, I don't have that job, I can, I can kind of try to do something a little, you know, a little different with Twitter and, you know, with social media generally, I can, I can schedule posts and just not spend time online. And sometimes I, I, I catch myself spending too much time on Twitter and seeing stuff that just makes me feel terrible, you know? And, yeah. and, yeah. and so I'll see this stuff and just sort of go, okay, I'm going to, you know, I, I, I need to sign off Twitter for now. And, you know, and I, I try to set, okay, you know, Twitter's making me feel bad right now. So I'm going to sign off till the morning. Good night. You know, like that's that sort of thing I found is actually just helpful for me because I, I then look like a, I look like a fool if I end up posting before then, <laughs> if, if I'm like, yeah, I'm signing off for the night and then I spend the right. next five hours right. tweeting. Like, so. And you come back, you're like, I'm still I'm here. Still yeah. here. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere, you know? And, uh, but yeah, so I, th- I think that, you know, trying to figure out a healthy relationship with the internet generally has been a, um, you know, is, is an ongoing process. And I think that, uh, you know, c- how we communicate with each other online is something that I, I just find, I find really interesting. I mean, it's interesting because I'm terrible at it at times. I'm, I, <laughs> and I, and I think that a lot of people, uh, kind of have sim- similar similar issues where their message isn't getting across or it's getting misconstrued or they're just not communicating in a healthy way. And so that's why this newsletter that I, I recently started, that's kind of the, the basis of it is this, this idea that communicating in this new sort of age where we've all been at home for, you know, a year and have had to co- contact each other via Zoom or email or, you know, tweeting at each other, like that sort of stuff you know, that, that it's, it's an interesting topic and it's not something that I consider myself at all an expert on. I just, one thing I'm, I'm enjoying about working on this newsletter is that it gives me a chance to talk to people who do seem to know what they're talking about on these issues. You know, it's, it's as much a project of self-improvement as it is a project of hoping that other people can take something from it. Yeah, I want to get into the newsletter because I think you're so right that these are issues that are going to become more prominent as we all realize the effects of living our lives, both in real life and on social media. Um, But I want to touch back on what you're talking about, because I completely agree. Like, I think particularly 
in the last year or so because of the pandemic, the parts of our life that we took away or were taken from us, things like being actively social and getting out and hanging out with other people and sharing energy in spaces and and all of that stuff was replaced by a lot more screen time and a lot more time interacting on social media because that was the way to still engage with other people. But the issue there is, of course, the constant influx of awful news combined, of course, with the, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths, social justice issues, you know, a reckoning on race in this country yet again, all of these things that are so deep and so difficult. And we were constantly wading through them. Well, it's not surprising that being on social media at times would very gravely affect your mental health and your happiness. And for you particularly, when you're covering politics, um, you're you're having to dive into all these spaces full of disingenuous people, people who truly criticize your very existence as a trans person. And so that burnout that you felt feels to me like probably as much of your decision um, to leave your work with Media Matters as the desire to engage and understand our communication and, and sort of like our, this new world that we live in. Is that fair? Oh yeah. I mean, that, that's ab- absolutely fair. I, it's, it's definitely a, a case of, you know, feeling burned out. I mean, my job at media matters was great. I had a lot of leeway when it came to picking the stories I wanted to write about of uh, the different things happening in the news. And, you know, I, I wasn't someone who had to spend eight hours a day watching Fox news. I had to, you know, be aware of it, but I didn't have to be so actively engaged in it. But yeah, there's, there's certainly a level of burnout that comes with, with that because the way that, you know, the way that cable news especially is set up is just to kind of scream talking points at you all day long. Yeah. yeah that goes over Keep to you watching internet. by making it feel like if you miss it, you're in grave danger or, you know, they're going to tell you something that's necessary for your life to be yeah. saved at any given moment. It's, it's so much fear mongering. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and that's, and that's sort of the, the, the thing that it, it just, it starts eating away at your ability to feel like a healthy person. I mean, it's hard enough to feel like you're, you know, like you're doing okay in such a weird time anyway, you know, so, so to kind of have that piled on top of it, plus you had, you know, the presidential election, elections are always crazy, you know, and then, and then after that, you had all the stuff with the, the Capitol and the count, counting votes and stuff like that, that was just nonstop news throughout all of 2020 and into 2021. And it, there just kind of came a point where I had to say, I need to step back. I need to not be uh, doing this specific job right now. And, um, you know, it's it's great. We, you know, I worked out something with, with Media Matters where I'm still going to send them, you know, freelance pieces every once in a while, but I just couldn't stay so continuously plugged in. It makes sense. I, I completely hear you. And it's actually, I'm seeing across the media landscape, women in particular talking about burnout and stepping away from jobs as editors and journalists. I have not seen the same trend necessarily with men. And I don't want to generalize. There are plenty of empathetic men out there, but I do think there's something in particular with the work that a lot of female journalists focus on, the care that they take with social issues, the interest that they have in protecting and understanding and amplifying the words of, of and the issues of 
uh, marginalized communities more so maybe than the vast vast majority of of what male journalists focus on. And I go again, don't come at me with the numbers that may be false. That's just my personal view based on my circles. Is a lot of women walking away from the jobs because that constant strain of of having to be um, invested in and knowing about the worst of the worst at all times. And it's and it's hard because there is a a feeling of wanting to do justice by the stories that matter and and continue to uplift and shine a light on things that matter while also protecting yourself from true mental health issues that result from that. Um, and so it's interesting, you pivoted in a way, and real quick, before we get to the newsletter, I know you mentioned earlier, and I know you said on your present age press introduction that you are not a transgender activist. No. That's interesting because most people would lead with that, right? Most people would say that that's who you are. And that stems from your deep interest in these topics for a really long time. Why do you take pains now to tell people that that's not what you do? So so one of, one of the reasons that I sort of bristle when it comes to, um, you know, this idea of people being like, oh, you're an activist is because I, I think that there are a lot of actual activists who are um, doing great work and I, I'm not really among them. I'm, I'm just I'm just writing about things that, that are happening in the world. I'm just writing about things that are happening around me that I care about. And I think that like some some people might consider what, you know, might consider that sort of work on their own end as activism. But but I really don't. I just I just think about it in, in terms of just wanting to live a better life and to advocate on my own behalf, you know, advocate for a better better world, you know, more equal laws, that's that sort of situation. So I, I make a point of specifying that I don't like being called an activist for that reason, because it once once someone calls you an activist, once someone pinpoints, you know, or really pigeonholes you as an activist, they they see everything as as being somehow more biased than if you weren't. And I think there are some some issues where you know, we we all have our, we all have our biases, but when when someone's like, "Oh, it's an activist," that's an activist, not not a reporter, not a uh, not a columnist, you know, or right, or whatever. Sure. And so and so, I I just make a point of saying that because it's just I don't want to represent anyone other than myself, and that I think is a good way to kind of make that sort of clear because I I don't like. You know, I, I I don't like feeling like I'm speaking for anyone else because I'm not ever. <laughs> yeah, it's two. There's two interesting things that, that made me think of. There's that really fascinating conversation and article that came out recently that essentially argued that in journalism, the only people that are allowed to be considered unbiased in their reporting are straight white men. And somehow mm -hmm. that's the norm. And that's that's OK. But there were women who were deemed unable to cover issues of sexual harassment or assault if they themselves had experienced it. There were people who were of a certain race that were that were deemed too biased to cover issues on that. And it's unbelievable how we've gotten this far and we're still basically claiming that straight white dudes are unbiased in their approach to the way things are and how we re how we represent them through media, you know, despite every single piece of evidence that that is not the case. Um, so it's interesting that you bring that up too, that this idea that if you're deemed an activist or even just your lived experience as a trans person make you biased as opposed to the idea of the number of stories out there that are written now about trans issues without consulting a single trans person. Like, right. It's it's wild that we swing so wrongly in one direction instead of um, down the middle or even swinging like mildly the other direction would be a lot more fair than what we do right now. 
Um, and to your other point, I wonder if the issues with, say, RuPaul's Drag Race or the other transgender um, author that you kind of back and forth had some yeah. had some issues with online. Do those drive this moment of I want to talk about these issues. I care about these issues, but I also am not maybe cut out or desirous of being representative in that way where my interactions and my takes on things somehow are given a weight that I, I don't feel either qualified or wanting to be afforded. Um, sure. If you get what I'm saying by that, like you want to express your personal take as a trans person, but you don't want to be the quote unquote expert on all things because of the the pressures and otherwise. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that that's, that's a fair, fair way to put it, you know, looking, looking back at those situations, it's, it's it's something where I I felt a need to try to you know I I saw injustice in the world and I and I was I was very uh, fired up to try to fix the injustice in the world and you know it 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 wasn't healthy you know it wasn't wasn't good it was it was a net negative you know I I, I feel like it wasn't helping me it wasn't helping trans people more generally, which is why I wanted to kind of make sure that, you know, people were not, not looking to me for anything but right. me. As you, you know? still figure it out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which you're allowed to do, which is actually a really mature thing to do. Um, and presumably, if ever in the future, you feel, you know, qualified and compelled to speak on issues, um, then you will and you'll do it in a way that feels natural to you and, and hopefully sure. is, is reflected in how people receive it. Let's talk about Present Age Press. It's yes. a newsletter about communication in a hyper-connected world. And this is from the description of why you wanted to, to, to start um, this newsletter. I've been asking myself a lot of questions lately. Why can't we seem to agree on even the most basic facts anymore? Have we really lost our shared sense of reality? What on earth is the internet doing to my brain? Why do I feel so angry all the time? And for that matter, why does it seem like everybody is so angry all the time? Okay. I feel yeah. seen. I am asking myself <laughs> and others these questions on stop, particularly the one that came really to the forefront was after watching The Social Dilemma, this idea of understanding that we truly are, many of us, living in different realities in the sense that what is given to us on the internet based on all of our previous searches and clicks and likes is a different representation of what's going on in the world than what somebody else is getting and how dangerous that is because when we've lost our ability to all agree on facts, then nothing has any more weight than anything else, including opinion or lies. And I'm so fascinated that this is a topic that you're delving into here because all of those questions are really on the forefront for me. And I wonder, what's your approach? Are you just taking a question and then trying to find someone who could answer it? For instance, like, what's the internet doing our brains? Okay, let me find an expert on that and do a story on that. Is that sort of the approach to this newsletter? So that's that's definitely going to be part of, part of the uh, part of the approach here. Um, I've I've set up a few interviews basically the 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 plan is to put out something like three three newsletters a week but one of them will just be a long q a back and forth and so i've i've had a few really really good conversations you know the the one i published last week was with uh michael hobbs who co-hosts the you're wrong about podcast which is one of my favorite podcasts so it was very cool to talk to him about that to just talk, talk about moral, moral panics, because that, that seems to be happening a lot. You know, right now there's that, that constant discussion of things like, uh, 
yeah, critical race theory that that came up and you know in in right wing media and then all these kind of conservative politicians have been have been trying to ban teaching of this this idea that that isn't really being taught to grade school kids but they they ban it under that but what it actually does is kind of limit what you can discuss about race which is you know limiting that discussion is not going to help anyone i don't think and so i talked to to michael hobbs about that and it was very interesting i published that last week i have another one coming out this this uh week i interviewed will butler from the band arcade fire and it's it we had a great conversation about uh performance and being in front of large groups of people again and, and whether that you know his relationship has changed with his audience uh, since before the pandemic. And so I'm trying to think a little bit outside of the box and not necessarily just go straight to experts, but to talk to people who just have experiences that are different than mine. You know, I don't know what it's like to be in front of 50,000 people like, like Will does. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what, what that's like, what, what trying to connect with that size audience in person is like. And so that's why I'm very interested to kind of have these conversations where I can can really uh, talk it out, try to understand where people are coming from. And one of the things I want to do, I want to talk to people that do live in that alternate reality that that I don't understand, and to try to to try to talk through with them. And I think that that's one of those things that finally doing the newsletter on my own is going to give me the chance to do, which is going to just kind of give me a chance to step outside of the sort of conventional way to, uh, you know, d discuss things. I want to talk to people who think that the election is stolen. Like, I, I want to understand why they believe these things that are just right. not true. And maybe I won't learn anything and maybe I will. Yeah, it's such a it's such an honest and genuine reaction to what we're all experiencing on Twitter, which I always try to explain to people is like, I'm not going to engage with you if you don't interact in a way that's anything like what you would in person. Like the rules of engagement with other human beings don't disappear simply because we're on Twitter. And so after experiencing so much negative back and forth, just screaming at each other and not trying to connect, you're now using this to try to seek to connect even to people who are completely different or have completely different opinions, because at least reaching that olive branch over and understanding why we can't find any common ground is the next step to getting to that common ground. And um, that I always find that frustrating online is the the tendency to just yell at someone. And I'm like, yeah. what, where are we going with this? Like, we're not, we're not getting any better. And like, I, I will occasionally take the time to drag someone because it's funny. Sure. Um, but that's not it. That's not because I have any intention of connecting with them. I just want to drag them and use them as an example of trash. For the most part, I actually respond to people. Why would you say this? Or what do you think about this? Or how about this? And when there is no genuine effort to engage in conversation, then I'm out. I don't waste my time with that anymore. I'm not getting anywhere. Neither are they. And so this seems like a really wise way to take your frustrations and the buildup of the last year plus and put it into something that will be hopefully cathartic in terms of the answers that you get. I'm looking forward to reading it because so many of these questions are ones that I have as well. And I do like talking to experts and understanding the ways I bring this up all the time because it just stood out to me in my friend Kate Fagan's book, um, What Made Maddie Run, the experts talking about how if you talk to someone that you love on the phone, in person, 
um, your brain waves change as a result of that connection you're making. If you just get a text from them, even if the words are the same, your brain's not moving. Yeah. And we might register that I love you and everything else the same, but psychosomatically, the way our bodies connect to our, you know, our, our many different nervous systems and everything else, we're not engaging in ways that affect us emotionally the same way as we used to. And that has a, a toll that we have not yet calculated. And so I think some of these conversations that you have are going to be really helpful for all of us as we're embarking on this thing that's you know, not not yet studied enough to understand. Sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited for it. I'm, I'm really, really, truly excited about it. And it, I, I feel like the the pandemic really kind of created this this right time to look at all of that, and you know where every everyone just in the past year had to kind of rethink how they do everything. You know, someone who is like a uh, you know a businessman who tends to make deals over work dinners or whatever, like he had to figure out how to send a good emails to to make his point, you know, to to do the same thing over the past year. Same thing with like talking to bands who've had to try to do streaming concerts or stuff like that. So it's really rare to have so many people have to change so much about their lives all at once for such a long period of time. Mm-hmm. So brought you know, everything into focus in different ways. In some ways, yeah. I think positively, and we can all address things that we need to change in our lives. And in other ways, I think people need to pause on major life-changing decisions because things might start to return to normal and you'll be like, okay, I'm good. I'm good. I didn't need to, you know, move to a different country, which for some people it's the right choice, but I'm seeing a lot of that too. All right. We got to let you go. But before you go, you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. It's a speed round. Number one, your current career is canceled. What job do you do instead? Oh, uh, uh, probably go back to um, uh, working on ad agencies. Number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Telling, uh, for, first day of work after coming out as trans. Number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Guessing the lottery numbers. <laughs> Very smart. Uh, number four, what current celebrity of music, politics, television, anything would you most like to be your best friend? I, I don't even know. I, I, I feel like Chris Evans would be nice. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, he does seem nice. What's your biggest, mostly meaningless pet peeve? People who chew too loud, which oh. sometimes I think is me, which is extra, <laughs> extra annoying. Yeah. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Uh, I think it was also the first first day of going to work after coming out as trans. <laughs> okay, so was it either as scary as you expected or as embarrassing as you expected? It was. Uh, it, it was. It was both slightly less, but still the most scared and embarrassed of my life. So I, I expected the absolute worst, and I got just kind of the worst. In a sense, that's a good thing. It's a it's a positive step. I you guess made it, you made it through either way. You survived. Yeah, I'm alive. Uh, <laughs> number seven. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? My my ability to focus. Okay, that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, number eight. Any musician or band, alive or dead, can play your next party. Who is it? Uh, I'd invite I'd invite Arcade Fire, not just because Will is going to be on my newsletter this week. <laughs> <laughs> that works out well. You've created See? a friendship. Yeah. yeah. Uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? Oh, um, uh, tr- trying to be a dude. 
<laughs> that's not really a failure though right that's yeah, that's you know it's like you you, you kind of uh you, you you kind of try to make your way through life and that's that's sort of the you know try to be this try to be this try to be this and a, you know whether or not that's a failure might be a good thing but it was something i tried and something i couldn't do were you a bad dude i was i was just weird i'm so <laughs> socially awkward and you know i was i was the weird kid who would sit on the stage and play guitar yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i wouldn't consider that a failure but uh you are welcome too um and uh, and you successfully uh, found your way out of that so there you yeah. go uh number 10 what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you smart empathetic funny yeah, it's, those are those boring are answers, ones. but I, th I think they're, you know, that's it. <laughs> I think they work. Yeah, I'll allow it. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is where I rant about something or rave about something, tell you something to read, listen to, or watch. And I'll do that in a second. But uh, first, the final installment of the Pride Month series on this pod. What does pride mean to you? Take it away, Parker. To me, pride means really just means hope for a better tomorrow i think i it's it's a it's a it's a way to look at the ways that things have changed for the better and the struggles that have kind of faced a lot of us along the way and it's 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 a good chance to really recenter yourself and understand that the struggle isn't isn't over and you know hopefully 20 years from now people can look back to right now and think Wow, we've come a long way since then. And so that's always kind of my hope that that we'll always be able to look back and go, wow, we've made a lot of progress since five years ago, 10 years ago. Well said. And in thinking about um, this interview with Parker, talking about the effects that social media can have on us, how it can frustrate us, derail us, also educate us and influence us. I want to encourage you after finishing this pod to um to go follow let's say five people on Twitter, Instagram, whatever your favorite is that are completely different from you or represent something you'd like to learn more about. Um, that could be trans activists, civil rights activists, people who share what it is to live with a disability, people who dive into the intricacies of a religion or a culture you're unfamiliar with. Um, exposure to people from different backgrounds and who lead different lives can greatly change your perspective, uh, your fear of the unknown, the potentially rigid ideas you have about how others live their lives. And the more judgmental you are of other people, the more judgmental you're going to be of yourself. And you might not make that connection. You might not understand that right now. But truly, the more you open yourself up to all the different ways that other people live their lives, the things they believe in, the people that they love, the choices that they make, the challenges that they face, the things that they deal with every day that you've never had to imagine or think about, um, it will change your perspective on yourself and the people around you. And I truly think it will make you happier. So in order to keep learning and evolving and staying open-minded, I really suggest you do that. Also, um, my great friend, Sharzad, who was on this podcast with her mom uh, a couple years ago before her mom's passing, um, they were incredibly honest talking about what it is to get... Um, uh, the diagnosis of, of a terminal disease and, and how to approach death and the life that you've lived before that death. Uh, it's a fascinating listen, and I, I recommend going back and finding that. But um, she has a new podcast called Not My Circle and is having fascinating conversations with people that she finds that are completely different and live completely different lives than she does. Um, 
a recovering heroin addict, um, a hunter, and, and Sharzad's been a vegetarian for her whole life. Um, there are all these people that she comes and brings into her world, um, and I really recommend her podcast, Not My Circle. It kind of goes along with this concept of, of going out and finding people that are different and hoping that it helps you evolve. You can always tweet me, at Sarah Spain, if you've got questions, suggestions, or more, and uh, you can always go to the iTunes or podcast app and subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Give us a review. And thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 